Hey, it's Katie. Aaron and I have a fun little podcast collaboration crossover episode situation to share with you. Recently, we joined Kyla and Kristen over on the Pullback podcast and had a really fun conversation about, well, you guessed it, responsible travel. Pullback is a great show all about ethical consumption. They've had some really interesting discussions about fast fashion, alcohol, carbon offsetting, cruises, and way, way, way more. So go check them out after you listen to this episode. They're also a part of the Harbinger Media Network, which personally I'm a huge fan of and I listen to a ton of their podcasts. And it's a network of Canadian podcasts that are creating a space where progressive voices can thrive. Very much our vibe. Okay, I know, I know, you might be wondering where the heck season five is, and it's only a few weeks away. Hey, we've been enjoying our summer. Rest assured, Aaron and I will be back very, very soon. Episode one will be on your feed August 31st. In the meantime, here's our conversation with Pullback. We had a really fun time chatting with Kristen and Kyla, so hope you love the episode, and we'll see you soon. My name is Kyla, uh, and I'm here with Kristen. Hello. And we're the pullback team. And if you guys want to introduce yourselves. Sure. Hi, I'm Erin Hines, and I am a digital marketer by day and travel podcaster and blogger by night. So I write the travel blog, Pina Travels, and I host the podcast, Alpaca My Bags. I am Katie Lore. I am Erin's trusty Alpaca My Bags producer. Uh, I'm a freelance podcast producer, and Alpaca My Bags is my baby. And Erin and I have been making it for, what is it, like three years now or something? You guys introduced yourselves a lot better than we did, so. <laughs> <laughs> Nailed it. <laughs> Kristen, who are you? Oh, that's a big question. Uh, uh, I'm Kristen Pugh. I'm um, with Kyla Hewson. I am a co-host of the Pullback Podcast, which is a podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. Yeah. And so we're teaming up with you guys to talk about ethical travel, which is something that we've been really wanting to discuss for a long time. And we wanted to get some experts in uh, because it's a really big topic. <laughs> <laughs> and you guys seem like you're really good at this sort of thing. So how do we travel not evil? Tell us. <laughs> oh my gosh, there's so many, there's so much to say about it. One thing yeah. I will say off the top that I think is important, and this is something Katie and I have like been talking about and debating for literally since we started the podcast, and that was about whether or not we would call it like ethical travel. And I would say over the course of the last three years, we've kind of shifted to saying responsible because ethical feels like a really philosophical term. And our show is really about just like coming up with strategies and simple ways that tourists can travel in a way that's better for people and better for the planet. And we're trying to like not be too moral about it. And we find like ethical people just react a certain way to it. So we, li we like to mm -hmm. stick with responsible tourism. I don't know, Katie, do you have anything to add on that? No, I mean, I totally agree. And <laughs> once you get into the ethical side of travel, then there's a lot of like, I just find that the travel space has a lot of people with a lot of opinions. And I feel like once you start to say something is an ethical way of doing things, people start to tend that to think that you're kind of one way or another, or you're telling people how to do things, where I think responsible just is a little bit more of like a conscientious choice, <laughs> where it's like a word that kind of encourages people to just like rethink how they do things rather than ethical kind of, I feel like tends to make people think that there's either a bad or good way of doing things where travel, there's just so much to talk about in this space. There's so much nuance that I just don't think there's like a good thing, a good way of doing it and a bad way of doing it. Well, way to tear down our show. Oh my God. <laughs> No, I totally agree. I think uh, responsible is a great word to use, especially for something that's as complicated as travel, though. Yeah. And yeah. I will say, like, your show covers such a range of industries and issues. Like, ours is so rooted in one specific 
area that like it we're only applying it to travel i think like in your <laughs> context it makes total sense to be saying ethical but in the travel space we were just finding like it wasn't landing well to use that verbiage so yeah that's how we ended up on responsible i forgive you <laughs> <laughs> you guys and Kristen really came up with a really like a great structure for how to start talking about this episode, which was to talk about all of the different layers that you should consider when going on a trip, starting with the planning and deciding on where you're going to go. And we have a lot of topics to cover. So do you guys want to start with the first one? I thought it was good to start with like a bucket topic, just broadly destinations. So I thought we could talk a little bit about like, how do you know if a destination is a responsible travel choice or not? Are there places that are off limits? How do we draw the line between like what's what's responsible and what's not in terms of choosing a place to travel to? I have some thoughts on it, but I wanted to start by asking like, do you two have any any views on this? Or are there any places that you wouldn't travel to? I mean, North Korea. <laughs> Russia comes to mind right now. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. It's really complicated, isn't it? Having to decide because like, obviously, you don't want to go to a place where there's an act of war. But outside of that, yeah, what are the criteria? I guess it really depends on the person. I, I, I think I wouldn't really want to go back to India for a long time because of the disparity that I saw there and the way that I was treated as a tourist. It just felt like... I was given a lot more privilege than a lot of people there. And I know that this is a very controversial take because everybody who goes to India loves it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm one of those people. So I have, I have thoughts to share, but I'll, I want to hear like your whole take. No, I mean, that's, I, I don't want to get too deep into it because I have chronic foot and mouth syndrome, but that, <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of like on the grayer area for me. Whereas like, there's obviously, yeah, some areas where you're just like, well, I probably shouldn't go there. But then what happens when you're talking about like, let's say you're a huge F1 racing fan and they're hosting a race in Dubai and you have a chance to go, like, is it okay to go to someplace that is politically not treating, you know, certain members of their population very well? I don't know. What do you like? What What is the answer? Yeah, it's, it's hard to come to it because it's so complicated. And we actually interviewed on our podcast at one point, this uh, man who does very, he calls it extreme travel, and he travels into like active war areas. And we, we honestly grilled him because I was like, it's kind of problematic <laughs> that you are just like getting a thrill out of going to dangerous places. But the one thing that he said to me that has always stuck with me was like, if you're trying to draw a moral line in the sand about politics, about like disparity, about really any issue, basically like there's not a lot of places in the world that you could travel to because every country does have its problems and it's obviously a sliding scale, but it's just very hard to decide where that line is because a lot of places, like depending on what the issue is, you just won't be able to travel to you if you're going to like make that moral choice not to visit places that have certain issues going on. And I always say too, like as Canadians, we have so many issues here. Like you look at like indigenous representation in tourism, it, they're like massively underrepresented. It's a huge issue. And that's an issue that other countries have as well. But like we have our own issues here at home. So it just gets so complicated when you think about all these layers. I think like personally, I make travel decisions based on like very obvious things. Like a, a big issue for me is over tourism. So I will look at it like how busy a destination is. I'll look at whether they're actually open to tourism. So for example, last year, Hawaii was, they were really struggling with being able to like keep up with offering water and medical care to their own residents. So it got to the point where their government was actively asking tourists not to come. And a lot of tourists did not listen. So I think a lot of it is about listening mm -hmm. to like the countries themselves to see if they're actually receptive and have the resources to support tourism, look to see how overwhelmed with tourism they are, and then layer in, I think it's a bit personal, but your own political takes. And I don't know, obviously, like dictatorships are off the table for me personally. Some people, maybe not, but like they are for me. 
But yeah, sorry, I feel like I'm on a tangent, but to go back to India, because I think that's a really interesting example. (laughs) Um, And I have a lot of thoughts on it because I guess some people, and you're not the first person to say this to me, that they felt uncomfortable there because it does feel sometimes like you're sort of like haphazardly involved in poverty tourism, especially if you find yourself like in a slum in India there are many of them. It's it's hard to avoid it if you are traveling there. But then when I think of it that, it's just like there are so many countries that are experiencing poverty, whether it's really obvious or not. It's really hard to draw that line and say, OK, like because there's poverty there, do we not travel there? Or because there's disparity there, do we not travel there? To me, it's all wrapped up in how you approach your travels in an impoverished region, I would say. For me, like with the poverty issue, it's about are you exploiting that poverty? You know, like there's people that will go to India and also like East Africa. This is a huge issue there. People are posting images of like children bartering for purchases that like they can absolutely afford, but they're just being cheap and bartering down as far as they can. Those are issues that I think are really tied to this. And I guess what I'm saying is I think there is a way to travel in regions that have disparity and poverty responsibly. It's just about being aware and thinking about how you're approaching the trip and how you're posting about the trip and what you're taking away from the trip as an individual. That's fair. That's a fair response and a fair way to look at it. <laughs> I I don't know. Yeah, it's, it is so nuanced. I India is such an interesting country. Like I'm sure we could do a whole episode just on India, but um, I like your take on it. I I, th- I think I appreciate that. At least in my experience, I spent two months there. I wouldn't say that my experience there, that the poverty and disparity shaped that much of it. Like, obviously, it was a part of it. But I did travel in many regions where it didn't feel as intense. But, yeah, I also went to, like, many different regions because it really varies throughout the country itself as well. Um, So I think there's also, like, so many different ways that you can experience India, which also makes it more complicated. Yeah, I did that as well. I was there for two months. And... um... I did uh, visit places in the north and the south. I tried to see as much of it as I could. And um, yeah, uh, India is not a country that is for me right now, but I don't need to be a dick about it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just to like, on the other hand, I think um, Aaron's point that there's a lot of poverty in lots of places, um, I think is a good one. For me, I'm thinking back about a travel situation I was in not too long ago where, so I was in Detroit with my sister and there's this thing that you can do in Detroit where you travel to see like different abandoned buildings. And we started to do that because like the old train station is cool and there's a couple of empty factories, but it started to just feel like we were driving through really deprived neighborhoods. So we kind of stopped because we felt really gross. And I don't think that that's something somebody should do. But at the same time, Detroit is a lovely city. Really enjoyed my time there. And even though there is a large disparity, bringing tourism back to the city is part of what's driving the revival there. So um, I would imagine that the same could be said about certain communities in India as well, right? Yeah, or places all over the world. I guess that's where it really gets complicated when you decide not to visit a place Mm -hmm. because it doesn't go with your morals because, or if, because like you think it's too the disparity is too wide, then is it not a bad thing to be depriving them of tourism, which is a huge industry that could help them grow? Mm -hmm. And and that's like an important Mm -hmm. point because tourism is just so beneficial for a country. Like it really does help to build economies and it can especially benefit really small communities. I mean, this whole conversation I've been thinking about what how it compares to Canada where we live. And like technically we're all on stolen land. So if anybody wants to come visit here, realistically, we should all be talking to the indigenous people, getting their permission. Uh, but that's not the case. And yeah, there we've even had conversations with uh, an indigenous man on our podcast about, you know, what is the reality of sending tourists to indigenous communities to try and, you know, help foster, help the economy there. Um, and there's still nuance there to that too, right? Because he was explaining to us, you know, if they want to bring tourists in, you need to talk to the elders, you need to talk to um, the bands and see like what they realistically want in their communities. Um, so, you know, the good intentions uh, might not be 
<laughs> enough. <laughs> you really, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuance to this that, um, you got to pick your destination based off of, I guess, where you think you can, uh, I don't know where my train of thought is going anymore. You know what? Scratch that. <laughs> I do think like a bit of it is like, there's a lot of disparity here as well. And that's kind of what yeah. I was trying to point to earlier. Like we have totally. communities in our own country that don't have safe drinking water. And so I think in some countries it's more evident, but it's really hard to travel to a place where there isn't extreme disparity. It's across the U.S., it's across Canada. Yeah, no, totally. And I'm visiting Kristen right now in Ottawa, and we went to Montreal. And uh, I live in Vancouver, so there's a very visible population of unhoused people in Vancouver. And it's always treated like a huge issue that only affects Vancouver when you're talking about like the 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 national news. It's always like, oh, Vancouver's housing crisis. But here I am in Ottawa and visiting Montreal, and I'm seeing the same problem just as visibly. And so it's really easy to forget, I think, for a lot of people that there's a lot of disparity in our own country that needs to be taken care of too. One aspect, I think, of ethics and destinations that I had thought of anyway that we haven't discussed yet is sort of traveling to places where you you might put a burden on a community if something happens to you. I, I was thinking about like Everest as an example, but I, you could also apply it to like the Rocky Mountains, things like that. Um, have you guys talked about that at all in the podcast? Or do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, that was a huge topic, especially throughout COVID, because obviously if you're traveling during an active pandemic, the likelihood that you'll need like medical attention or some sort of aid is pretty high. We are like, we always talk about how important travel insurance is. That is the best thing you can do. There are a lot of people that do not get travel insurance when they travel. I see it all the time in travel forums and it's probably my biggest pet peeve because not only does travel insurance protect you if something goes wrong, but it does help the community that you're visiting because it relieves some of that aid and redirects it. I think it obviously is different per destination. I mean, Everest is an interesting one, but like there's permits involved. Like the average person isn't going to be going to Everest. But say you're going skiing in BC, then absolutely like you need to have travel insurance if you're outside of Canada or non-Canadian rather. I don't know. Katie, do you have anything to add? I don't have like a whole lot to add to that other than like if there's any countries out there too that are just like particularly dangerous and don't have like super lucrative economies that can just, you know, pay for all of your medical bills. Like if you're going somewhere that has venomous snakes and like spiders and stuff like that, like yeah, you should 1000% be considering getting insurance so that, you know, you're just helping not spend the local economy on, you know, your own stuff. Like if you're in the hospital for like multiple days on end, that's a bed that could have been, you know, given to somebody else. So I think there's a lot of different things to that piece as well, where it's like, I think a lot of people go to destinations to be this dream version of themselves that they all wish they could be in their regular everyday lives. Um, and it's easy when you're on vacation or you're on a trip to do stupid things, <laughs> do things that you wouldn't normally do at home. So there's another piece of that conversation where you have to think about how to be an actual responsible traveler to yourself and the local economy so that you're not taking resources from people that didn't need to be spent. Hawaii is another, like, I always go back to the Hawaii example because it's just such a good one where they were actively saying, like, we don't have resources to support yeah. tourists, like, in the medical sense, but also we don't have water. I just, I always tell people, do your research, do your research before you travel somewhere and look for things like that. Check the news, see what's going on politically, see what kind of resources they have available, make sure you get travel insurance. And just think about your own like boundaries when it comes to like ethics and responsible tourism. Because like, as we've discovered, like everyone feels differently. Everyone will have personal boundaries about it. So it's just important to take the time to like think that through before booking a trip to a place. Okay. Now, before we move on to the next part of our trip, what's your guy, what's your dream destination? Oh, <laughs> oh like my personal dream destination? <gasps> Mongolia. Oh, yeah. I think I still would love to go to Japan. Kristen? 
Yeah, I think Madagascar would be cool, though. Yeah, yeah. I would love to spend time in Thailand. I've been to Bangkok, and it's amazing, and I'd like to see the rest of Thailand. Mm -hmm. Well, okay, so the next part of planning our trip is uh, flights. Oh, yes. This is always fun to chat about, especially right now, because I don't know if all of you are on TikTok, but TikTok is up in arms about the fact that the Kardashians have been taking like four minute private jet flights and just releasing an absurd amount of CO2 into our atmosphere to go oh. like what would have been like a 40 minute drive. I'll also add that it was, uh, I think, recently leaked that for any Canadian listeners, Drake is also taking flights from Hamilton to Toronto, which is like, are you serious? Yeah, you know, this is an active discussion in the travel community. I talk to people about it all the time because people want to know if they should cap how much they fly and how much of a difference that makes. And I guess what's important to know is that taking a flight is definitely one of the most carbon output activities like you can do as like an average person. Every time you take a flight, like the amount of carbon that's released is a lot compared to like your daily output. The thing is, I feel bad like putting the responsible the responsibility on individuals because the reality is that like flying is for travel, but there's also a lot of like very important reasons that people need to take flights, like going home to see family or perhaps they have to go on a work trip. There are reasons that people have to fly. So it's very it's it's not super realistic to like completely quit flying altogether. But there's a few things you can do to reduce the impact for when you do fly. The main thing is just like fly as little as you need to. Um, so for example, if you're thinking about flying Toronto to Montreal, don't do it. Just take Via Rail. <laughs> it's cheaper. It's like basically the same amount of time and your impact will be much less. I always encourage people also to avoid flights that connect. It is more expensive to fly direct often, but every time a plane takes off and lands, more carbon is emitted because I guess there's like more power coming out of the plane. And so every time you take off and land, that's when the most output is happening. So we've been told on our show that when you when you book direct because you're taking off and landing only once, that will help to reduce a little bit as well. Some people say that you should not check baggage because weight on a plane increases like the carbon output. I've actually heard debate about this, so I don't really know how true it is because like how much is one checked bag going to contribute? It's really hard to say. A great thing you can do is purchase carbon offsets. There are a couple companies that do this. Basically, what it means is you punch in like your flight and it'll tell you how much carbon was let out. And then you can basically like pay a tariff, but that money goes towards like a sustainability project. And often you can choose the project. Um, so it's a nice way to counterbalance your impact. We've done a whole episode on carbon offsets that people can find in our feed. They're complicated. We don't need to get into them right now, but it is an option for sure. <laughs> don't buy cheap offsets because oftentimes they don't do very much. Um, or so, anything. <laughs> yeah. If, if you're going to purchase offsets, make sure that they're good ones. Another alternative, if you're not so into measuring stuff, is you can just donate to an environmental group. Um, that can be just as good in a lot of cases. Yeah, offsets are interesting. I think because I don't think they're going to go anywhere. So even though Kristen and I, it's not our favorite way to contribute to the planet, because it's going to become a bigger and bigger part of the solution in the coming years, whether we like it or not, you might as well support the good side of it. But I like the idea of um, donating to an environmental group as well as a way to offset your carbon. Yeah. And this is, we had someone on our show last year who talked about this as well. He was saying like, you have to be very discerning about where you actually purchase your offsets. I think people just like it because it feels like it just makes sense. Like it's a, an easy equation and it just feels like a trade-off. And so I think that's why it works so well for people. But I totally agree. I think like donating to a vetted organization is just as good. Totally. And I mean, we're in our episode on carbon offsets, we were very skeptical, but I think we're much more skeptical for companies that are trying to claim that they're net neutral or companies that may have certain emissions caps and they're trying to meet regulations. For a, an individual trying to offset a flight because you think it's a moral thing to do, 
just do the best that you can. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We've picked our destinations. We have gotten in our electric rowboats and sailed <laughs> to the spots that we're going. <laughs> Let's talk about the itineraries. What are we doing? Okay, this is another thing that's very personal. And I have actually gotten a lot of flack on TikTok because I talked once about slow travel and people were really upset because, and this is a fair criticism. People said, I don't have a lot of time off. So when I travel, I I don't have time to go like spend a month in one city to really like soak it all in. So that's a fair criticism. Not everyone has like a lot of PTO and time to take to travel. So slow travel isn't going to work well for everyone. But if and when you can, just travel as slowly as possible. Rather than shoving like five destinations into a two-week trip, cut it down to like maybe two, maybe three, maybe even one. You might find that like you actually really enjoy spending a whole two weeks in one place. And the reason that's good is because when you spend more time in a place, you have more time to connect with the local community and also spend money in that community. So it just means that you're able to have like more of a positive impact versus if you just like fly through for one or two days. Yeah, it's true. And I also think um, slow travel can give you a different perspective on a place. Like I think about the first time that I traveled to Paris, it was like your typical, like very short tourist trip. And I really didn't like it. And then I went back because I was doing field research for my PhD. So I was there for like two and a half months or something like that. And it gave me a totally different perspective on the city, you know, like the mode of life, uh, the neighborhoods that there are and like how how many sort of different vibrant communities there are. So I think, yeah, I, I really like the idea of slow travel. Okay, so we're in our destinations. We've decided to stay for a while. We're slow traveling. How do we choose vendors if we decide that we want to do stuff? Ooh, okay. Whenever you can, hire a guide. And I like to get a private guide. It can be expensive, but it's worth it. Because that is literally one-on-one time with someone who's from the place that you are visiting. You should vet that. Like, it's not always the case. But in most countries and most destinations, your guide will be local. And I actually have, like, so many beautiful memories of guides that I've spent a day with. And it's just nice because you get this time to, like, really chat with someone who is, they're typically, like, obviously very open to chatting with you and answering any questions you might have. So that's one thing I would say is always worth doing as long as you have the budget for it. Oh, and if you don't have the budget, I do the free (laughs) version where I download Tinder in the place (laughs) where I'm at. (laughs) And I get a local to show me around that way, which is great because I'm not going to go to like the cool bars if I'm there by myself, you know, so. (laughs) That is genius. Yeah. So I'll usually connect with a local by going on a date. When I was in Paris... I ended up dating a guy for like the nine days I was there. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. What a good hack. Um, I will I will also say free walking tours are a thing, especially in Europe, but I have seen them in other parts of the world as well. And I've done a lot of those as well. Like it's usually a bigger group, but if you're really like towards the front of the group, you can usually squeeze in some questions. So if budget is low, do the free walking tour. Just be sure to tip at the end. And I like doing them on the first day that I'm in a place because it kind of orients you really well because they're usually like a very generalized tour. Like they'll sort of show you a couple different neighborhoods, give you some like overview of history of the region. They'll often give like really good recommendations for like restaurants and bars and places to go. So I just find they're like a good thing to do on day one because they really orient you. And from that, you can figure out what you actually would like to spend your time doing. Mm -hmm. I'll add to... I mean, I have feelings about Airbnb, but there are um, like excursions that you can book on Airbnb. I was really excited pre-pandemic. We had um, messaged this woman uh, in Lisbon who was just doing like a nightlife kind of bar crawl kind of thing. We only had a 30-hour layover in Lisbon for this trip that we had planned. And I was so excited because she was just going to show you to like all of her favorite bars and would take like a group of five people around. She just was a local who was excited to show people kind of her favorite places in town. We had an Airbnb in uh, Portugal recently where he was like, if you stay here, I'll make you dinner and I'll show you like tell you about all of my favorite places. You can make some really good connections on Airbnb. 
But yeah, again, there are more feelings about Airbnb as a whole, but... Yeah, I'm wondering if this might be a good point to ask you about that. Like, what are some red flags (laughs) to look out for? Yeah. (laughs) Okay, yeah. Airbnb is so hard. I personally am, like, really moving away from Airbnb at all for many, many reasons. I know someone who actually worked for the company, so I have some insider knowledge that really turned me off. So yeah, I just find like the experience for the traveler has gone downhill since Airbnb first started. There's a lot of issues with like not knowing what you're really booking. And I think like the biggest issue is just that Airbnb encourages people to buy up properties and just rent them out. And in some regions of the world, it's not local people that are benefiting from that. And so I always tell people, like, if you're going to book Airbnb, just dig a little bit into the host and try to get a sense of of if they're actually local to the place that you're visiting. So, for example, like I was in Mexico last year and I noticed like most of the Airbnbs in the touristy regions are clearly owned by like sometimes people will actually say it in their bio, like owned by Canadians or Americans. If you really want to support the local community, try to find an Airbnb that is owned by someone who is actually local. But I would still say like a safer bet is to find like a small independent hotel. You can also do like apartment rentals that are small and independent. You just have to dig a little bit more to find them. One hack I've done actually is look on Airbnb because often, often postings on Airbnb, you can book them outside of Airbnb. You just have to do some detective work. Like we booked an apartment in Belize for later this year and we just like looked through the listing really carefully and found some keywords and punched them into Google and found <laughs> this person's like website where they actually like had villas up for rent. So sometimes you can like find a way, like use Airbnb for discovery and then book outside of the app. You just have to be a bit of a detective. But yeah, I think the main thing with vendors is just you want to make sure the money you're spending is going to people that are local to that region so that's benefiting that community. I would also say it's important to support companies that are really transparent about their sustainable practices. Do your research. That's the main thing. I often look at reviews of like, tour companies and really anything hotels as well look through their website see if they have any like actual transparency on their website about what they're doing if anything and if they don't email them and ask and see what they have to say and I think that this is important because when consumers start demanding that more and more companies and businesses will recognize that this is something that people want I'm curious what you both have to say about this, though, because there's a lot of like greenwashing. It is really hard to actually tell what a business is doing and if they're actually doing what they say they are. So I'm curious if you have anything to add. You can generally tell if somebody's really serious about sustainability and what they're doing. I think that's like typical of all industries. If there's a company that really, really cares about like sustainable fashion, for example, Usually that's something that they mention a bunch of times on their website, and they usually talk about several different concrete ways that they're implementing things in practice. Whereas if you take, let's say, a different fashion company that's trying to greenwash a little bit, (laughs) H&M, without naming names, um, you'll often see like certifications mentioned, but it's not something that they're really foregrounding in their work. And if if you dig behind their efforts, Like they're really sort of scratching the surface of what they could be doing. Maybe there's a bit of recycled material in what they're doing, but they're not like talking about what the carbon footprint of their clothing is. You know, maybe they are, they do have like a code of conduct, but, you know, they're not auditing it. They don't have a transparent supply chain. Greenwashing is tricky. It's greenwashing itself isn't necessarily pure evil, it is normalizing the conversation that we need to be having about whether or not we should move towards a more sustainable economy. It's just whether or not they're being sincere, it's hard to say sometimes. But I mean, even if they are recognizing that it's something they should be doing, I don't know. I mean, you can also ask questions. That's another thing that I think is really important. If you're not sure whether a company is strong enough on sustainability or any other criterion that you're trying to apply, 
try emailing them or calling them. Um, and if they respond and have an answer that you're fairly satisfied with, it's a good chance they've looked into it. If they're dodgy, that might give you bad vibes <laughs> if you book with someone else. Yeah. And I mean, it, if you're going to spend, you know, potentially thousands of dollars with these with these vendors, it's really not so many extra steps to send them an email first, right? I was going to stress that point too, because like Aaron said, the more that you normalize emailing people and businesses and asking them questions, ideally, there are lots of people doing that. And that kind of normalizes that they need to take it seriously. So even if they are just greenwashing, it either means that they can spend more money on pretending or they can spend on more money on making a difference. And the reality is like there's a huge generation of people coming up who are about to spend a ton of money that is disposable income and they only want to support ethical and like forward thinking businesses. That's just the reality of where the world is headed. So, you know, I think People just need to be less awkward about things and just be okay with being awkward and just email and call and make a big fuss about things you care about. Well, and that generation that you're talking about is also going to be a little bit less easy to trick with greenwashing. Um, like being being tech savvy is goes a really long way in whether or not you can spot greenwashing and it's very much a generational problem. I mean, I can I get sucked in by greenwashing all the time. It's not exclusively generational, but it is easier for me to do the research online because living online is like a second language to me, you know? I have a question for you that is not travel related, but I'm just curious your take because you both talk about this all the time. So I'm sure you have one. Xi'an. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> I read an article recently where they were saying it's ironic because Gen Z is apparently really interested and invested in supporting like companies that are doing good. And yet they are the biggest market share of Xi'an, Xi'an. like they spend the most money at Xi'an. So I'm curious what you think about that. Cause that's kind of disappointing. Like I found that disappointing and I thought like, well, shouldn't you all be boycotting it if if this is like the identity of your generation as people say it is i think there's sort of two things there um, one is that people don't immediately think about the fashion industry when they think about like the climate crisis and our environmental problems so there there's like an awareness piece that needs to happen there people who might care quite a lot about climate change um, and might care a lot about like plastic pollution might not necessarily be connecting those dots the other thing is that um, Gen Z just, I mean, they're younger, um, they've just got less income, you know? So it's like, it's a lot easier for me to be able to purchase my one linen shirt that's going to be fairly expensive, but I know what my sense of style is. I know I'm going to like it for years. I know what my body's going to look like probably for no the next little while. And uh, I've, you know, got a stable job. I don't have any student loans, so... I, you know, there's there's a capacity issue too. I would also add that because Gen Z, it, it, this goes to what Kristen was just saying, is quite young. I think a lot of it is, yeah, like a knowledge thing, but also they maybe haven't been taught the better ways to dress themselves because their parents are of a generation that n never would have gone to a thrift store. Well, and also fast fashion really is something that didn't exist until like the 90s. So it's like a generation that's grown up completely in fast fashion. Although that's also something you can say about our generation. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> but but um, it's, it's different because with our generation, we had to go to the mall to get our shitty clothes. <laughs> we couldn't just press a button on our, on our cell phone and have four payments set up for us of like $12 and get whatever nice thing we just saw on TikTok. So a lot of it is also just this pressure that social media is putting on especially young people to present right? And Xi'an makes that easy. Mm -hmm. And I was actually going to add, like, at that phase in life, fashion is very important in a way that, like, it's definitely not as important to me now that I'm in my 30s as it was, like, in my early 20s. So, like, the emotional part of me understands why young folks want to be buying more clothes to keep up with trends, which is more of an industry problem, I guess, because they're the ones, like, pushing these trends. Yeah. And I will also say, just to be fair to 
to J- Gen Z here. Um, they're also reviving thrift sh- thrift shops in a huge way. They totally are. Yeah. So you know, it's it, every generation has its uh, complexities. I've got one question before we move to the next theme. Uh, are there any red, red flags to look out for when it comes to picking things like restaurants? Ooh, that's a good question. I mean, I always tell people just stay away from the chains. I mean, did you really fly to Italy just to go to Starbucks? So, I mean, just stay away from the chains and try to eat like in spots that that are local. Yeah, I can't really think of anything else I would add to that. Food is a hard one for me because I have such severe food allergies that I just don't get to enjoy food when I travel. I have to be very, very careful. My partner, though, loves eating street food. So I would say that's like a really great way to support um, local communities and street vendors. And it's also a great way to like taste food in the place that you're visiting, like taste what's local to that area. So yeah, I would say that it's hard for me to follow my own advice because I often have to eat in chain restaurants because it's the only place I know won't kill me. But if you don't have life-threatening allergies, just be experimental and try to eat the food that's local to the place you're visiting. I mean, one thing that we talk about when we talk about food and ethical eating is taking into account seasonality, like what is in season in a place. So I don't know, my instinct here is that, and this may not be true, but eating according to local cultures, like probably you're factoring in seasonality to some extent, at least I would imagine around like Canadian eating culture, there is a more sort of like, you eat berries in the summer, you know, you eat more root vegetables in the winter. Maybe there's some version of that wherever you're you're visiting. Oh, and bring your own, uh, if you have the space to do it in your travel bag, can always be good to bring a cup uh, with you if you like to drink coffee. bring cutlery with you so that you don't have to pick up plastic versions. I also bring a um, filtering water bottle on every trip. It filters like it'll filter any water for you. So tap water from anywhere in the world, you can instantly drink just by filtering it with this bottle. It's really amazing. The one I use is called Grail, but a lot of people use Life Straw. And then like you never have to buy bottled water. All right. So we have enjoyed our time at our destination and now it's time to go home, but we have to bring souvenirs for all of our friends and family. How do we how do we pick souvenirs? <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a grinch about souvenirs. I I never buy souvenirs for people because it feels so wasteful. <laughs> Unless it's <laughs> something that I know that they will genuinely use or that they've asked me to bring for them. So, I can talk a bit about like my own approach to souvenirs. I personally like to stay away from sort of the mass produced items that you'll commonly see in souvenir shops basically all over the world. My partner and I like to buy things that we're going to use. So, for example, whenever we go to Central America, we buy tons of spices and we bring them home with us. Often we'll buy coffee and that's what I'll give to my parents. They'll they'll get like a nice little packet of of ground coffee. And we'll buy like items that we'll actually use around our house. So we have like all these handmade bowls that we bought in Mexico City a couple years ago. We use them every single day. We have a carpet in our bedroom that we brought home from Jordan many years ago. And I'm sure we're going to have it for the rest of our lives. So I would say instead of going after the mass produced like small souvenirs, try to buy something that's like useful and that you expect you'll keep around for a long time or something that's like edible that you'll get to enjoy back at home. Like the coffee thing in Jordan, they um, add cardamom to coffee. So we (laughs) bought like, I think we had half a suitcase of this coffee because we were obsessed with it and we had it for a year. And I remember the day it ran out, we were both so sad because we loved this coffee. I got to try it. It was really (laughs) good. I got to try it once. Yeah. I actually found a place in Toronto where where you can get it. So we have some again, Katie. So next time you come over, I'll make it for you. I want to add too that uh, I think like, like Aaron has said, we say so many times on our podcast, just do your research. You can research ahead kind of like what souvenirs are going to be the most meaningful for you and like what that com- that country like specializes in and stuff. So like for me, I love artwork and I love eclectic artwork. So I know going into my trip, I'm looking for like some amazing pieces that I can hang on my wall. So like it kind of adds us a bit 
of excitement when you go on the trip because you're just like so excited to find something amazing. And like same with Jordan, you know you can get amazing carpets there. So go and like maybe save up money for something that's a meaningful souvenir that you know is going to be quality and uh, really good and specifically from that place rather than kind of treating souvenirs as like a last minute purchase kind of thing. Like I recently bought a last minute souvenir, which was a bottle opener magnet because my partner and I realized our hotel room didn't have a bottle opener. So we were like, well, we just got to go grab this one last thing because we need it. But like, (laughs) I don't think any otherwise, like on my trip, I was just looking for artwork. I was looking for sardines that I knew I would love to enjoy at home with crackers. Like just think ahead of what that company, that country specializes in. And it'll make like the souvenir purchasing more meaningful and have a bigger impact, I think. Okay, so we've got our carpets and our art pieces. Let's talk about intentionality. It's a good general principle. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I will say like one of the things that we talked to, we had these women on our podcast who said something that has like never left my brain, which was good intentions are not good enough. So you need to like, it means you have to do your research. Like I said, like it means you have to like seriously be critical about the choices you're about to make in a country. And this conversation and that like intention is like specific, very specific to like volunteerism, basically. Like, why do you need to go overseas to like volunteer with kids who are like totally fine without you? Like, you just have to like really be critical about like what your good intentions are and if like you can be better or if they don't need to happen in the first place. Like why are you seriously doing something? Are you going somewhere to help someone or are you going somewhere to just like post pictures about it on Instagram and like see seem like you're a good person? Like sometimes you got to get real real with yourself. Volunteerism is a really good example of that. I would also add animal tourism to that because most people who engage in animal tourism love animals. It's why they're interested in it. So Or love killing them, yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I'm thinking of like when you do like the dolphin experiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, and like I didn't know any better when I was younger. Like some, like you see pictures of people riding elephants still today and it's like, that's not, that's not how an elephant should be like experiencing their life, you know? And so, it, but if you love animals, but you've never done any research on animal tourism, you might not know any better and you just do it because you're like, oh, wow, I would love to see this animal up close. Are there any forms of animal tourism that aren't problematic? Maybe if you're supporting like a, like a local... A sanctuary? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a sanctuary. I don't know. What do you guys think of that? So we actually chatted with Natasha Daly, who's a journalist for National Geographic, and she wrote a very long piece about animal tourism around the world. I think she spent two years traveling around and learning about what goes on behind the scenes in the industry. And we did a whole whole episode on this. There's a lot to say about it. But the main takeaway that she shared with us is that animal tourism should never involve contact with a wild animal. This includes feeding. It also includes washing. And I'm guilty of this. When I was in Southeast Asia, I did do an experience that was at what appeared to be a like reputable elephant sanctuary, but we got to wash the elephants. And I learned afterwards, talking to Natasha, that even that is considered like crossing the line. These wild animals should have no contact with you at all. So the best experiences that you can opt for are ones that are observation only and observation from a distance. Yeah. So like Kruger National Park, if you were to go to South Africa, there's a lot of like really amazing national parks that are like a good opportunity to do um, where you're just observing from a distance and not interacting with anybody. But I mean, like one of the craziest things that we learned from Natasha was like, even if you go to some, some countries just swap out elephants. So you'll go to like a sanctuary that they seem very happy running around and free and doing their thing. But then the elephant will be like brought over to some tourist photo taking thing later on in the afternoon. Like, so you just don't know. So you have to really like do your research and it can get really complex and frustrating. So overall, it's kind of like best just to don't go anywhere where you touch the animals. And just to add to that sanctuary, that is not a regulated term. So basically like any business can call themselves a sanctuary in many parts of the world. And so 
like Natasha told us, she, she honestly was like, look at the reviews, like go to the mm-hmm. business online and filter through the reviews to the bad reviews or search for like specific keywords, which you can now do on a lot of review aggregators. Because if people have seen questionable things, they will leave a review about it. So that's something that I do. I actually do that like for a lot of tourism experiences now. I always look at the reviews and I look at the bad ones to see like what people have caught. You need to be a bit discerning because like people love to complain in reviews. But when it comes to animal tourism, especially people are pretty honest. And when I was in Southeast Asia, I just trusted that if a place said it was a sanctuary, it was. That was like very shocking news to me. I I actually recommend that everyone read Natasha Daly's op-ed that she wrote about this because it's really well done and she really breaks down what's going on behind the scenes in these places. Nice. We'll put a link to that in the in the show notes as well. That's a really good point, though, with the reviews. That's a really good tip. That's how, yeah, when I was in Japan, I wanted to go to like a cat cafe. And so when I when I looked up the cat cafes in Japan, I noticed that there were quite a few other cafes for different types of animals. There's like owl cafes and like bunny cafes. Yeah. And like a dog cafe. And I was like, oh my, this sounds fun. But the first thing I did, because I subscribed to this as well, was I went to the reviews and I looked up the bad reviews and it's really helpful in avoiding bad places. (laughs) Cat cafes are the only cafes that should exist. (laughs) Not even dog cafes? No, because like they have to go out and get walked and dogs like being around other dogs, they take up so much more space. Cats just like to sleep for 18 hours a day in their own spot, you know? That's true. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) I went to, I'm a cat obsessed person. I went to a cat cafe in Japan, a well-reviewed one. And I will say those cats seemed very, very happy. And also the staff were very like, they really brief you on cat behavior and they were monitoring everyone. I thought it was really well done. And I a great time. Yeah. We might have gone to the same one, but the owl like but then you look at the reviews for like the owl cafe or the dog cafe and it's like, "Oh, this is not good." So, I love that tip with reviews. That's true for if you're looking for a place to stay as well. <laughs> I use that for hostels a lot. <laughs> How to talk about travel online. Do you have any suggestions for that? Yes. I think like the main thing I would say is just think about the way you're sharing about a destination or about your trip because it's really, really easy to accidentally perpetuate harmful stereotypes or ethnocentrism or even colonial undertones. It does happen. And so before you post something like to a public, mainly social media, to social media about a place that you're visiting, just like think through what you're saying about it and what your image or your caption is communicating about that place. When we interviewed these two women who were based in Uganda, they told us like one of the issues they find is that when people post about their visit to Uganda, they're just focusing on like poverty. And they said, there's so much good here and there's so much beauty to show, but people show that. And that has always stuck with me to like show the good, like show the good in a place. Um, And I always think about that now when I travel. I like that. I one of my favorite pictures that I've taken on out of anywhere I've ever traveled was in India and it was of a goat standing on a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> and I there's so many beautiful things to see in like whether you're having a great time in a country or not. Like Kyla didn't like India, I think because she doesn't like chickpeas. I think that is Oh, you got me. <laughs> I'm busted. <laughs> I'm actually allergic to chickpeas, so I'm right there with you. <laughs> oh, and one one thing I'll add that I think is really important to say is people, d- just don't post photos of random people without their consent. Yes. Just do not, especially children. Um, and, and when you get consent to share a picture, like get informed consent. So I find this is like an issue in the blogging community. If you have a platform, you need to like communicate to the person that you're asking consent for how like far this image will spread. So if you have like 10,000 followers on Instagram, you should probably let that person know, like this isn't just going to go to your like family and friends. This is going to go to like a very public platform. I basically just like never post a photo of a person that I don't know personally on my, on my channels. Fantastic. Okay. So we're all, we've all gone to our destinations. We're traveling slow. We've offset our 
carbon footprint or taken a train. And uh, and we're only buying souvenirs that make sense in the long run and aren't going to just end up in a dumpster in a year and a half. I love this trip that we've gone on. Did we miss anything about about our trip that that we should that we should think about intentionality wise or or have we nailed it? I think we've nailed it. There's one thing that I want to say that I feel like is important to always say about like thinking about being a responsible tourist. It's not a race. It's a marathon. So start small. If you're like making changes to the way you travel, like don't feel like you need to do everything perfectly right away. It's okay to like take time to learn, take time to adjust and like find new and maybe more sustainable ways to approach travel. And also like, I think it's a bit personal because like I was mentioning earlier, food is very hard for me when I travel. So I can't like being vegetarian is nearly impossible for me because the nuts that I'm allergic to are often included in vegetarian food. So especially when I'm abroad, that's that's a dangerous choice for me. And so the food area is one area where I can't compromise. I unfortunately have to make like bad choices when it comes to the food that I eat when I travel. And every person like will have their own personal things that might shape the way that they approach responsible tourism. So yeah, I just wanted to say that because I think it's important to say, I think like I, I get worried that people feel that it's like preachy, this whole responsible tourism thing. And really it's just about like trying to get people to think about how they can just reduce their impact in whatever way works for them. Yeah. And for your specific example with the food, a lot of that is not an issue with you as a traveler. It's an issue with systemic problems where (laughs) like it shouldn't be on you to not die from eating food, you know, like, (laughs) and so the fact that you have to make bad choices, it's because there aren't good choices to make. It's not like you are making bad choices on purpose, you know? And so like a lot of, a lot of the way that we live is like that, whether you're traveling or not. I think you're right that this applies in lots of different ways in people's lives. Another example I could think about, if somebody has mobility issues, um, it might be harder to take public transit in certain like cities because maybe the train stations aren't accessible. So maybe in that case, um, you know, you might need to rent a car or something like that. And that's okay. We're not here to like shame people for making decisions that like might not match their values in abstract because we all exist in a real world with... <laughs> fucked up problems and we have our own constraints. And that's, that's totally fair. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. I do feel a little bit better about my trip to see Kristen. Um, <laughs> although it is not slow travel. <laughs> we spent like a day and a half in Montreal and I was like, this is the greatest city ever. Oh, <laughs> only a day and a half. I love Montreal. I could stay there for like a week. Oh, beautiful. It just means you have to go back. This is, oh, I should have said this. This is another thing. Okay. Country counting drives me a little nuts. We don't need to be country counting. It's okay to go back to countries that you really like or cities that you really like. And that can be like a really enriching experience. So don't shy away from that. Thank you for the permission to go to Edinburgh a million times. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Well, just to finish us off then, I want to end on a really uh, happy question for everybody. If you could go back to a place, where's the first place you would go back to? I mean, I feel like I already spoiled that with my last answer. <laughs> <laughs> it is what gave me the idea for the question, though. Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Well, I have like a weird relationship with this question I'm realizing because like I went to Santorini as a kid when I was like 10 years old and like fell in love with it. And like, I would love to go back so badly, but I know that they're suffering from over tourism right now, at least especially in, I think, Ia. So I would love to go back to Greece. I love Greek food. The culture was just so fun. I had such a great time when I was there as a kid. And at the time I was obsessed with Greek archaeology, like obsessed. So like, I just had the best time. So I think like, I think I'd probably want to go back to Greece at some point because it was just such a beautiful place. Oh, Greece is great. That's a great choice. <laughs> okay, this is hard for me to answer because I want to go back to basically every place I've ever been. But <laughs> <laughs> my partner and I talk mostly about wanting to go back to Japan. That's a big one. Um, we actually do want to go back to India. We'd like to see more. 
and we really want to go back to Iceland. And we literally just visited Iceland and we <laughs> cannot stop talking about how badly we need to go back. So that's definitely going to happen. I can say those three are for sure happening probably in the next few years. Nice. Okay. For me, I would love to go back to China. I don't know. It was the best place I went. I, I, I don't know. I just loved everything about China. So I would go back there in a heartbeat. I loved this conversation. And if people want more of your amazing episodes with fantastic guests, by the way, uh, they can catch you on Alpaca My Bags, spelled like the animal. I love I love it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. And uh, they can catch Kristen and I on Pullback. I mean, it's a good title too, but Alpaca My Bags. Oh, it's great. It's so good. It's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's a good play. Yeah, <laughs> Kristen loves a play on words. I do, I do. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having us. This has been really fun. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Yeah, thank it you for awesome. Yeah, thank you for allowing us to finally do a proper travel episode. We've talked about cruise ships before, but not in the same way. Cruise ships are yikes. <laughs> 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 this was much nicer. <laughs>